Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. I'm sure all of us pay attention at least a little bit to celebrities, and people who are famous, people who are popular, um, and there's lots of them. Uh, and I noticed that this is the time of year, I think, that a lot of times there are awards shows and ceremonies that uh, they honor. So it's like if you're a, an actor, you get to vote on or somebody votes on all the other actors and they all come and they ooh and ah and celebrate each other. And the same thing's probably true with musicians and athletes. There's all kinds of awards ceremonies. So I thought we would do an award ceremony right here in our church because who's more important than us? And so uh, the first category would be the, the nomination of the person who most wanted to shout out a name men but was able to constrain themselves. The nominees are, no, never mind. Um, no we're not going to do that. But, um, you know, some of the celebrities are not as important as they get press time for. Uh, for instance, if you um, happen to go out in the morning and you go to start your car and it not, does not start, there's a very low likelihood that Tom Hanks will come and help you do it. Or if you go home and the house is ablaze and on fire, and although he's put out lots of personal fires, former President Bill Clinton isn't coming to help you with that. Well, that wasn't nice, was it? I'm sorry. Or if you got that diagnosis from the uh, medical team, I don't suspect that it would be encouraging to see LeBron James come in scrubs to talk to you. It, that would not be very good. They may be celebrities and they're big time stars. Some of them are probably far from being superstars in the eyes of God. Now here's a disclaimer. Uh, not normally, but last Sunday, as soon as church was over and we had eaten lunch, I decided that was a good time just because I knew the week was going to be really crazy and busy. So I sat down and wrote this all out. And uh, so this was all written up last Sunday. Okay, I say that because um, while I was actually doing that, you may have heard there was a helicopter crash in California. And a celebrity was among those who were involved in that. By the way, you may not know this, but there were seven others. On that too. So, uh, very tragic, very sad. And since then, there's been an awful lot of uh, coverage on that. And made me think about the four vehicle fatalities that have happened in Wayne County since the first of the year. And some of them, some people we know, really great people, not quite the same amount of coverage for them as others. And, and so you ask why? Why is that the case? Well, I have often started certain funerals. On, on occasions, I started certain funerals with a quote that I found once that says something to the effect of, life is precious, 
death is painful, and it's only in Christ that we find hope. And the part there that I wanted to connect is the fact that life is precious, all life is precious. It doesn't matter who it is, um, I think, at least to God, all life is precious, because Christ died for everyone, and he considers each and every one precious. Then I watched, um, I saw Friday night the uh, Sports Center, ESPN Sports Center, which is an hour-long sports summary show, and you take out the 20 minutes of commercials, so you probably get about 40 minutes. That night was the night that the Lakers played their first game after the crash, and the show coverage of the 40 minutes of actual sports coverage, 30 of those minutes at least, were something to do about Kobe Bryant, some aspect of him. I'm saying that's okay. Um, I do wish we could do that for everybody that we know and love, because you and I know some people that are really great people, and uh, it would have been nice to do that. But there were all these um, different uh, memorial tributes and, and areas set up that people can go to, and it is pretty moving and it's pretty interesting to see and I wondered about what motivates a person to do that, you know, to go and be there. Some of them are in their jerseys, and some of them are bringing uh, displays, and there's uh, people hugging and crying, and, and that's all understandable. It's all good. Some of that's because they desire to be a part of something special. We all long to belong to something really significant. Or maybe they just want to be connected to someone who they think is great. And, and a lot of them are doing that simply because they care. They care about people. And so all of that is really, really good. Um, but it moved me to think in lines of how very important it is that you and I, uh, as followers of Christ, stay connected to him and live lives that truly are changed by his word, and that people can see that in us. And I'm not able to make commentary on the actual lives of the people who were involved in that, because I don't know them, and I don't know their hearts or anything like that. I hope that they knew Christ as Savior. That would be wonderful. Uh, but I, I don't have that information but I do know that there are people who watch you and I who really need to see uh, that there is something about this thing in following Jesus that is really significant, and it is real, and that we need to um, we need to display His love and His grace as much as possible. Last Sunday, uh, when Pastor Clark spoke from the beginning of Titus chapter two. He, uh, at the end, he gave a really great invitation, or challenge if you want to call that, to what, what we're calling the First John Connect. It's sort of a discipleship mentor program. It's only five weeks, and it's only one hour a week for five weeks. So I'm guessing most of us could scrape that up somehow. But what we're asking you to do and if you weren't here and didn't get to see this, there are um, copies of the material around the Welcome Center just outside the doors at the back of the church. But it's inviting you 
to invest in someone else. Uh, one hour a week uh, for five weeks. And um, the material there is good. It's really, really good. Uh, you will learn. Uh, you will grow. And uh, you will have a significant uh, time and maybe a big impact with somebody. So if, you, um, if you're interested in doing that, just take that material. Uh, it'll help introduce you to the idea. We debated we don't want anybody to feel pressed or pressured, and we're not going to make a list of names of that three people who don't get involved. We're not going to do anything like that. But um, in some ways, it would help if Clark or I knew who was doing this and who's teaming up, because I'm going to invite, if somebody really wants to do it but they don't have a partner, then go to Pastor Clark or myself, and we'll try to help you find somebody that would be a great fit and match up with you and, and help you. So in that case, it would help if we know who's already involved so that I, I don't send seven people to the same person who's already got someone. So anyhow, that's a really exciting thing that was introduced to us last week uh, from the first uh, eight verses of Titus chapter 2. And um, so Pastor Clark spoke on that last week. And since he's already covered all the hard, tough stuff, now we can go on to the rest of chapter 2. He mentioned last week that, uh, and this is really a good insight, that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young disciple of someone he had mentored named Titus. I don't know that he's real young, but he's younger than Paul. And um, so it's a letter. And, and I think Pastor Clark said something. So in a sense, we're reading their mail which I always thought was a federal offense in certain cases. But anyhow, that's what we're doing. It's pretty neat. The Apostle Paul always linked doctrine, the things that he's teaching about God and, and his word, he always linked doctrine with duty. We don't just learn for the sake of learning. We learn because it impacts us and it changes us from the inside and then that works its way out so that we can live lives that are really reflective of what God wants us to do. So last week, there were four categories of people that were addressed. You can choose whichever one you want to be in. There were older men, older women, younger men, younger women. I'm not making any assignments on that for you. But today we want to look at a fifth category, and um, this is the category that starts in verse 9, that talks and addresses slaves. Now, you may think you are, but you probably uh, have not experienced slavery in any uh, real serious sense, at least not the kind that they have experienced or some from the past. So you need to think differently when we look at this because you're not excluded, and neither am I, from what is said here. It's not like, oh, that's a class of people that for 150 years ago or 2,000 years ago, not me. But when it says slaves here, you may want to think in terms of employees um, or if you're a student, as think in the sense of students. So I'm going to read to you verses 9 and 10 to begin with. And it just says this, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about 
God, our Savior, attractive. So it starts off with the word, you know, telling us about slaves. This is addressed to slaves. Um, I think maybe one translation might have bond servants. But these are people who are owned and controlled by a master. That's a hard thing for us to understand, whether it was 2,000 years ago or whether it was 150 years ago. But that system of slavery was an essential part to the economy of that culture at that time. They were needed. They needed laborers. And so that's what they had. And in many ways, it was really uh, significant to the social fiber. Now, I have a phrase in your outline that I'm hoping that nobody will take way out of context and misunderstand. But I think it says, the Bible does not address slavery. But what you don't have is my comment and some of the other comments that finish that statement. Um, however, the teachings of the Bible have helped rescue many people and even some cultures and societies from slavery. Now, I've never wrote a thing in the Bible that said, I am against slavery and it must stop now. He didn't do that. But just the principles of Scripture that teach about the dignity of mankind and the hope of this great world that Christ has won for himself has led people like William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln to see the horrors and the evil of what our cultures, uh, the British culture and our culture, had experienced through slavery. Slavery and, and man has, slavery has been diffused and mankind has been elevated because of the teachings of scripture. So it doesn't specifically say, stop it, get rid of this, this is evil. It doesn't say that, but it does teach God's perspective for humanity and what he really looks at. The bottom line in every single thing that we ever talk about is always the issue of the heart of man. The issue of the heart of man is always what we're dealing with. So here in these verses, 9 and 10, there are five character qualities that will distinguish the slave employee student in order that they can reflect the transforming power of God in their own lives. I give you some verses from Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Timothy to talk a little bit more about that, and that's fine. So, um, the first thing is submission. In verse 9, it tells us to be subject to our master. Subject is a military term. It has to do with a, a soldier placing himself under the command of an officer. The master for a slave uh, is the person who is of absolute power, just like the owner of the business that you work at, is the person who gets the final say in every decision, whether or not we go ahead with this, we don't go ahead with this, we go that direction, this direction. They're the ones who have that say. And the sin that probably was going on in on the island of Crete among maybe some Christians or those who claim to be Christians, is perhaps the sin of disobedience. They were not obeying, and they were not placing themselves under the authority of their masters. Christians obey their masters and go the extra mile at that. 
Now, Paul had lived in that. So you're sitting there saying to yourself, but he knew that because he was in it. You're saying to yourself, but not all masters are considerate. They're not caring. They're not sensitive to their, to their subjects. That's true. But still, the believer in Christ obeys as long as it's not biblically violated. They obey and they don't rebel against that person. Some slaves in that culture responded, I think, grudgingly. Um, and that was the inappropriate response. They were not to do that. The next phrase it says is to try to please them, or um, we're going to call it the term excellence. Well-pleasing, being acceptable. So now think about your own situation, your own employment, where you work, or where you're at school, because this is true. The most important, the most fertile field of evangelism for you is the place you work the place you're at. That's your mission field. That's who you're most in contact with. That's who you're impacting. That's who you can win and try and reach them for Christ. So the primary purpose of working hard, the reason why you go to work every day and work as hard as you can and work in the area of excellence at your field is not so you get a promotion, not so you get a raise, but so that you can honor Jesus Christ and, and that he would be exalted. Now, in their culture, and maybe with a boss situation for you, some of the masters and, and some of our bosses happen to be Christian brothers. They're believers as well. But just because we're equal in the spiritual realm does not translate to being equal in the earthly realm. So, for instance, if you worked at a factory and your foreman was a Christian and you were a foreman and you were a Christian, you're not to take advantage of that relationship so that you get special treatment, you get more longer break, or you get easier jobs, or, or whatever. That's not to, to be the way we act. Your sincere desire is to do whatever is pleasing and acceptable to Jesus. Also in this verse, it tells us to be respectful of them, not to talk back to them, not to be argumentative or mouthing off. All of that is a sign of self-centeredness. And unfortunately, in our culture today, there is a lot of that that we can see around us. A lot of people that if somebody tells them something, they're going to just blast off immediately and respond that way. It's hard for, in some cases, in the work situation, um, you may be somebody who's been, let's, I'll take you to a factory, and you've been working on the machine for 15, 20, 25 years, and you've got a, a new supervisor who's been there for five years, and there's no doubt that you clearly understand your job better than he does or she does. Um, that's just, that's possible. And yet, you're still to be as much as possible uh, submissive, respectful, and work with excellence in that. You even just writing to the to your coworkers can become a bad testimony. There's better ways to deal with that. Verse ten tells us a couple things: honest and loyalty. Um, 
honest, the sin of stealing, pilfering, misappropriating, embezzling, any of those things um, are not good. They're easy to do sometimes. And in that culture, in, in the Roman Empire and the slavery that happened there, it became very easy because some slaves distinguished themselves and were elevated to the position of manager or they called them stewards over household goods or stewards over the business affairs. And it became something that was really easy for them to cut themselves a little better slice than everybody else got. Or maybe he took something because of my responsibilities, they owe this to me. I earned it. That's easy to do today, too. The scriptures gave an illustration of that once when uh, the little tiny letter that Paul wrote to Philemon talks about that. Philemon was a godly man who apparently was really wealthy, well-to-do, and he was a godly man who actually hosted a great group of Christians in his home. He had a church in his home, and he also owned a lot of land and property and stuff. And he had a gentleman who was a slave who was not a Christian, who elevated himself and was significant as a manager steward over the affairs of the uh, business, the family-owned business. And on one occasion, Onesimus probably plotted for a while and saw his opportunity, and he went on a business trip with uh, all the goods and the funds and the finances. And while he was there, it was a perfect scenario for him to escape his boundary of slavery and with the goods he had, start a new life. And that was great. But while he was on that journey, things went bad. He, he went to see Paul while Paul was in prison because he knew about Paul from coming. He knew somebody who cared. And Paul led him to Christ. And Paul's writing a letter back to Philemon and telling him why you need to receive Onesimus. Don't punish him. Receive him because now he's a brother in Christ. It's a great letter that takes you about two and a half minutes to read. If you haven't done it, you really want to do that and read it. Christian workers need to take orders respectfully, and they shouldn't steal. Whether it's time or things, we don't steal. You don't inflate your timesheets. You don't exaggerate your expense reports. You don't take home office supplies. You don't use unauthorized funds. Ananias and Sapphira did that in a sense. In Acts chapter 5, um, they didn't need to do this, but they sold a piece of property, gave the money to the church, and they told them that I sold it for this amount, and I gave it all to the church, when actually they sold it for more. But they really kind of wanted the, uh, the glamour of the attention that everybody would ooh and ah because, wow, the amount wasn't anymore. It's just they thought they gave everything to the church. And what a great commitment. What a sacrifice on their part. But Peter um, confronted Ananias and said, is that true? You gave it all? And he said, oh, yeah, we gave it all. Now, there was no requirement to give anything. But he said he gave it all. And it says, you have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And... He fell over dead. And then the first ushers came forward and they took this corpse and took him out. And then a little bit later, uh, his wife 
Sapphira shows up and they question her. Did you sell the land? Yeah, we sold the land. Did you sell it for this amount? Yeah. Did you give it all to the church? Yeah, we did. And he said, you know, look, look, here comes the feet of the ushers again. And so they uh, took her out. The point there is not how much you give. It has to do with being honest before God. And I'm kind of glad God doesn't feel that way today with people who are dishonest because I'd have a whole lot more feelings probably. And I don't need that. But um, that's just the way God wanted us to see how serious being honest and sincere and demonstrating a changed life in Christ was. The area of loyal in verse 10, it goes on to tell us that they were faithful. They could be fully trusted, utterly dependable. And the result was that it made the teaching of Christ attractive. In one translation says it adorned the doctrine of God. The word for that is where we brought into our language as cosmetics. Um, it put in proper order. There's symmetrical um, views here. They were expected to be obedient. They were expected to be diligent. They were expected to be faithful. And they were. Could you just imagine if somebody were a slave and lived those five principles, somebody else on the outside just might say something like this. If that is what Christian religion does for slaves, there must be something to it. At least that's how Haley's Handbook of the Bible put that in there. Can you imagine, wouldn't it be great if somebody said about you, if that's the way they approach their work and their relationship with their co-workers and their boss, then there's something to this thing that they call their faith in Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Kenneth Weiss wrote about the word trustworthy, and he said it embellishes with honor the word of God. It just explodes the honor all over God in his word when we do that. When we beautify the gospel, we make Christianity attractive to others. Well, here's some good news. Paul just didn't tell us, here's a bunch of principles to get your slaves to live by, because that's hard to do. And... Um, some people are in very difficult situations. I've worked in jobs outside of the church before that were impossible to, to work for. And the bosses were unreasonable. And yet, um, there's got to be a little bit of hope here. So Paul goes on to give us a little bit more hope. Let me read verses 11 through 15. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So here's a couple of the principles of God's grace that um, Paul gave to them in Crete. First is that God's grace redeems us. Salvation. It's the universal need. Everybody needs to be saved from their sins. 
but yet people cannot do that on their own. He saves us, and it was given to all men. In First Timothy chapter two, verses four to six, it talks about how salvation is given to us so that we can have a knowledge of who God is, and to um, to be able to experience that there is one God and one mediator, and His grace is for us to uh, to give us a hope. Jesus became our substitute. And you were redeemed. You know, when Paul said that word, redeemed, to the slaves who lived on the island of Crete or any other slave, that would have probably made their heads explode with joy. Because the word redeem in their culture was that somebody was a slave and someone would purchase them and purchase their freedom and then that slave probably just, you know, very um, lethargically would walk over and say, well, now I belong to you. And then that owner would say, you don't understand. I purchased you in order to give you your freedom. You're free, and I'm going to give you enough to start up a new life. And you can go and, and make a home and, and have a family, and you can do whatever you wish to do. That was an amazing concept for them. But that's what Christ has done for us. He's purchased us and paid for our sins, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit to, to have a great startup in a new life. He redeemed them. He set them free by paying the price. He took them from wickedness and iniquity to purity. He took them to where there is holiness. And those of us who are followers of Jesus dare not compromise our life. We dare not compromise our testimony because of what Christ has paid for us. Another thing is that grace reforms us. I think I have a fill in the blank that I didn't put on the screen. And when I knew that, I thought, oh, I'm not going to mess with it. But here's what I have. Three things. It's going to be a change of attitude change of ambition, a change of action. It's a change of attitude because we go from, you know, our, our self-centeredness, which may include bitterness or hatred or whatever it does include, to a spirit of grace, to God's grace being strong in our lives. And then it gives us ambition, and the ambition of our lives goes from living for ourselves to living for Christ, serving Him and serving others. And there's a lot of action. I didn't have another definition. It's just you become active for Christ. And that's changed lives. And, and it literally says in, the, in verse 12 that we say no to all the evil things that are around us. We're trained and transformed, instructed to bring glory to God. So when it comes to our relationship with God, it's self-controlled. We deny the ungodliness and the worldly desires that are around us, and it gives us purposeful action. And when it comes to our relationship with others, we're righteous and sensibly godly. Grace reforms us because God purifies us and sets us apart. We're set apart from sin and devoted to service. 
And all of that is in this present age. Those slaves on the island of Crete were capable of living godly lives and having an impact on even their owners and others around them. And you are capable of living a godly life that impacts the people around you. We're saved from our sin, and we are eager to do what is good, not what is worthless. Every activity we should think about and decide, is this really something of value? Does this contribute to the cause of my Savior? It's a good question. Another grace that he helps us with is the grace that rewards us. In verse 13 it says, we will be glorified. That's interesting because for you and I, we're, we're struggling through this journey and someday we'll promise that we will be glorified in Christ. But in God's mind, it's a done deal. He's already called us. He's got us to himself. And he knows the day is going to happen. He's ready for it. You're, you're as good as done in his mind. It's, it's done. But for you and I, we're looking for hope. We're looking for the appearing of our Savior Jesus. We're looking for the glory that is his and it will be ours someday in the future. Believers should always be expecting his return. We should always live as those who see him face to face. The Bible tells that the Lord is coming again. And that fact should supply a motive for you and I every moment of every day to be moved toward godly living. The second coming of Christ causes us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It offers hope. Verse 15 tells us that these things, all these things that he listed, I think the first two chapters, but particularly the, the mentoring discipleship between each other, the, the submitting to those who are above us, all of that should encourage and rebuke with authority. That we should be able to use them to accurately interpret Scripture and proclaim it clearly. No one should be allowed to reject or disregard God's truth. Don't you be a stumbling block to someone else who says, well, if that's what a Christian is, that ain't what I want. Don't you be that person. What makes the church attractive, and it makes us influential in the world, is not our strategies, as brilliant as they are. And it's not all the programs, as vast and great as they are, but it's the virtue and the holiness of the people that makes us attractive to our outside world. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the admonition of Scripture that calls us to a higher standard than anybody else around us. That was true whether you were a slave in Crete or a slave in Wayne and Medina and whatever counties we were in, as workers and students and just people who walk with Christ day by day. Now, it's a struggle, Lord, and you know that, but you have equipped us with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God to help build us up so we can face the many trials, the complications that we see, even in a world that is pluralistic and 
um, in which it's just difficult to to clearly state a life of Christ without being misunderstood or even um, attacked to a degree. Lord, you are, you are clear in calling us to live redeemed, grace lives. So help us as we do that. Thank you for this time so that we can encourage one another. And as we gather together and, and fellowship, that, that would be a strengthening tool because we need one another. We thank you for giving us all these gifts to bring us closer to you, to help reach those around us. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.